Well, it's an honor and blessing to be able to speak this morning um, while Pastor Mike and his family are continuing to enjoy some extended time over the holidays with their family. The Lord has truly blessed our church with the McClung family. And I ask that you keep them in your prayers as they travel back later this afternoon from Alabama. As we begin this morning, I have a question for you. Where were you the summer of 1985? Some of you are thinking, well, Lee, I wasn't anywhere because <laughs> I wasn't born yet. Um, others of you may have been early on in a career. Maybe you were in school. Maybe you were starting to raise your family. 33 years ago, where were you the summer of 1985? I was actually 14 years old that summer, and my dad was the pastor of a church in Shelby, North Carolina. And after school got out that summer, um, my brother Cameron and I, he's one and a half years younger than me to the day, we were uh, taken to Toledo, Ohio to visit with my grandparents who lived in Toledo. So my baby brother was staying behind and my parents drove us up there and dropped us off and we were going to be spending four long weeks with my wonderful grandparents. I was looking very, very forward to it. Now these are the kind of grandparents that were the, the fun grandparents who liked to create memories through adventures. My grandfather would take us out on Lake Erie and we'd go fishing out there for walleye and different kind of fish that you don't necessarily see in Lake Hartwell. Um, we also would go to Cedar Point, which is the best amusement park in the world in my opinion. Um, anybody ever been there? Yes. Cedar Point's fantastic, especially if you love roller coasters. Um, my grandmother would take us shopping. We'd like to go and get clothes and stuff for school. She would do that with us. And then when my grandpa got off of work in the evenings, he would take us in the, his truck, his Ford F-150, and take us to Dairy Queen so that we could get some ice cream in the evenings. Very wonderful memories of time spent with them. Also, around 10.30 in the evening, sometimes we'd be watching television, and my grandfather would look at us with kind of a twinkle in his eye and say, who wants to make a taco run? Taco Bell was just around the corner, and if you like Taco Bell or not, I love it because of those memories that are attached from childhood. I've been eating their tacos for as long as I can remember, and um, so when we got old enough, my grandfather would actually toss us the keys, my brother and I, to his shiny Ford Crown Victoria, and we'd be able to jump in that car and go to pick up the tacos ourselves and bring them back and have them for a late night snack. So all of these things we had experienced before, and I was looking forward to more of the same over that month that we were going to spend with them that summer of 1985. So the first weekend we're there, my parents dropped us off. They went back to North Carolina. My brother Cameron and I are there with my grandparents. And Saturday night, our first weekend there, they said, where do you want to go for dinner? And my aunts and uncles and cousins who lived in Toledo were there. And someone suggested one of our favorite restaurants. And since we all loved it, we agreed and said, sure, let's go there. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking over the menu and I decided I'm going to try something different that I'd never had before. I had no idea how that mistake, that choice was going to affect me for the rest of that summer. Anybody here ever experienced food poisoning? Mm-hmm. Yes, I uh, had my first experience with food poisoning by choosing what I did on the menu that night. And by the time I got home from the restaurant, I became violently ill. I was extremely sick to the point where I literally could not sit on the couch and even see commercials on television that were advertising food. Just the thought of it made me sick. And I was losing weight and I was not able to eat. And this went on for two weeks. I could not keep anything down. And it got to the point where I was so sick that my grandparents contacted my parents and said, I think we need to return the boys early. Lee is very sick. And so that's what happened. Um, I didn't get to enjoy any of those things I was looking forward to enjoying that summer. And we were returned to my parents. And as soon as they saw me, they said, we need to take you to the hospital. 
I've never been a big guy. Um, and back then, I was even smaller than I am now. Um, and it affected me so horribly that I was given medication. It took me a couple weeks even to recover to the point where I could start eating again. And I lost so much weight that over the next 10 or 15 years, it took me a while to regain any of it. The day that I got married to Amy, I weighed 132 pounds just because of how that affected me that summer. So if you've experienced food poisoning, you know what that's like. But today I want to talk about a poison that is worse than bad food. And none of us in this room are immune to it. Maybe you've never had food poisoning and you're not able to relate to that. But there's a type of poisoning we're going to talk about today that none of us are immune to. In fact, it's lurking inside each of us right here, right now, where we sit. And it's waiting for the opportunity to damage and to destroy. Let me just paint a little picture of some of the things that this poison does. It eats you from the inside out and keeps you from having any desire to celebrate someone else's success. It seeps into your brain and keeps you from initiating an apology when you know that you're in the wrong. It triggers your anger and causes you to continue to argue your point even after you realize you didn't have a very good point in the first place. It's a virus that keeps you from being honest with yourself and honest with others. It's a toxin that keeps you from admitting that you don't know something because you want the people around you to think that you know everything. And so it causes you to shut down when you should be opening up. It's what causes you to cheat before you allow yourself to fail. It's what causes you to lie about anything. It's what causes you to have to have the final word. It's what causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying attention anyway. It's what causes you to feel entitled or superior. And it's the poison that triggers an avalanche of personal sin and broken homes and broken marriages and wounded relationships. The insidious poison that is lurking inside each and every one of us is pride. And you better believe it's more poisonous than that bad food that I ate that summer of 1985. It's worse than the bite of a venomous snake. It's that nasty, disgusting, poisonous thing inside of you and inside of me that C.S. Lewis was talking about when he made this incredible statement. Infidelity, anger, greed, drunkenness are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. Pride leads to every other vice. I remember coming home from work one day early in Amy's and my marriage and um, was early in ministry and um, was just thinking about some of the things that we needed to establish as some of the rules of our home it was, as it was going to pertain to ministry. And we often had people in our home, and our home became a ministry tool, still is to this day. Um, but early on in those first few years of marriage, I had come to this decision one day while at work all by myself. And as a young husband, that's a red flag. If you are coming to a decision all by yourself and you're going to come home and then share this kind of mandate with your wife probably need to check yourself. Um, and the wives are nodding. I learned from my mistake. So let me share my mistake with you young husbands that may be in the room um, so that you don't repeat it. I came home this one day and I told my wife that I had determined that in order for our home to be a proper ministry tool, it needed to be kept at a certain level of clean. Yeah, wasn't my proudest moment. Um, Maybe it was a prideful moment. Um, and I told her that it wasn't just straightened that was the appropriate level. And it wasn't just decluttered 
or you know, visibly clean, I told her the level of clean that I thought our home needed to be was spotless. Many of you know Amy. <laughs> you know she had a few things to say in response to that. <laughs> um, mother of young children and you know, taking care of them and cooking meals and doing all sorts of things. And her husband comes home and said, by the way, I think that we need to keep our house at the level of spotless so that when people show up unannounced or I just decide we need to bring someone home for dinner, they can experience our home in all of its spotless glory. So a few choice things that Amy said to me, as you can imagine, but one thing in particular that stood out to me that she said. She said, you realize that your drive to maintain this image of perfection in our home is really connected to your struggle with pride, right? And I'd like to say I was really humble in my response, but I was not. I was like, pride? This has nothing to do with pride. This is about ministry. You need to get on board. This is about ministry, not pride. I'm grateful for God's grace expressed to me through my wife. I couldn't see that what God was trying to say to me in that moment through my wife, what took me years to realize was that image and management are two words that when they stand alone aren't necessarily wrong. But when you put them together, they become a deadly combination. Image management is rooted in pride. Amy saw this, and she gently called me out on it. Image management is what we begin to do when our inner world becomes separated from our outer world, when the front stage of our lives and the backstage of our lives are not integrated like Pastor Mike talked about not too long ago. Jesus knew the dangers of this disintegration, and he had zero tolerance for it. He spoke very directly and very harshly against image management, and he didn't pull any punches when he was talking to the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 5, he called them out. He said, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear long robes with extra long tassels. To the average synagogue attendee, these ministry professionals look like they had it all together. Prayer boxes and tassels could be legitimate expressions of spiritual devotion. However, the problem for the Pharisees was that they used them to project the image of a life that they were not actually living. A few verses later in Matthew 25, Verses 25 and 26, Jesus tells them, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we're reminded that the Lord does not look at things the way that people look at things. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I think we all know what it's like to prop up an external image that doesn't match the reality of our soul. I've wrestled a lot in my life with being a people pleaser and caring so much about what people think of me that it has been an open door sometimes for pride to come in and make an idol out of image. Sometimes the life we all experience between Sundays isn't exactly what it looks like when we see each other here at church on Sunday. Over the course of several years, God has made me aware of just how closed my eyes have been at times to the deeply, deeply rooted struggle of pride. Early on in our relationship, Amy adopted a little phrase that she used to say to me when she recognized my tendency toward image management. I remember her saying it to me one night in the car, just like it was yesterday. I remember her saying it in our first apartment that we lived in. She would look me in the eyes and say, just be real with me. 
She noticed that I was having a hard time letting pride and image get in the way. And I wasn't being fully transparent with her about my struggles. And she would say, just be real with me. And I really used to get upset by that phrase. In my mind, I was being real with her because I had never had anyone in my life up to that point call me out for not being real. And it felt kind of insulting. But one thing that the Lord has shown me over the 25 years that Amy and I have been together now is that being real, being transparent, being humble is the only way to true intimacy. Whether that's intimacy with my spouse or intimacy with my heavenly father, intimacy in my relationships with other people, the only way to truly experience that the way the Lord has designed it is for us to be real. I had to come to the place in my life where God opened the door to my blindness of that. In his book, Replenish, Pastor Lance Witt writes this. The greatest danger really isn't in projecting a false image. There's a Pharisee inside all of us. And I suspect we'll struggle with this as long as we live on earth. But the greatest danger is in getting comfortable with it and learning how to appear spiritually successful with a disconnected soul. Over time, we can become very adept at playing the image management game. But the truth is, you don't have to have a healthy, humble soul to be perceived as a success in life. Pride is a poison that makes greed and drunkenness look like a flea bite. And it's inside of you and it's inside of me. And you've been a victim of it and your family has been a victim of it. You've also dispensed it and I've dispensed it. And one of the greatest problems with pride is that it's so easy to spot in other people. And yet it's so difficult to see when we look in the mirror. Which means there are people in your life who are victims of your pride. But you can't see it because you may not even be aware or thinking about the fact that there's a pride problem. Pride is the root of all sins. If we're honest with ourselves, we suffer from a pride problem. We want to be the center of the universe. We all want others to constantly see us in the best light. There's a story told about a late European leader. It's kind of humorous, but at the same time, it's pretty telling. He had a servant that said of him, I cannot deny that my master was vain. He had to be the central figure in everything. If he went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If he went to a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. He always wanted to be the center of attention. For being honest with ourselves, there are times when we would have to admit we struggle with the same problem. It may not be to that extreme, but pride is the tyrant in all of us. I like how one pastor put it. If you're not aware of the pride in your life, it isn't because of its absence. It's because of your ignorance. I have a few things I want to point out that you probably already know about pride. Maybe you've even thought about these things before. Um, and if you're using the bulletin insert, this is where the fill in the blanks is coming. First one, pride diminishes you. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We have a tendency to think that pride makes us bigger, stronger. Sometimes people even use the word puffed up. But the reality is we're not a bigger or better person when we step into pride. It actually makes us smaller and worse off. Pride diminishes us and our capacity to admit wrong. Pride diminishes our capacity to apologize. Pride makes it difficult for us to accept responsibility. It keeps us from saying what needs to be said, such as, I have sinned. I am sorry. I need forgiveness. 
Pride keeps us from hearing what needs to be heard as the Lord tries to speak to us or the Lord tries to use other people to get through to us. Pride can keep us from giving what needs to be given, from being generous, because we want to keep things for ourselves, thinking it belonged to us in the first place. Pride can even diminish our capacity to love and to receive love. Pride leads to our downfall, not our building up. Arrogance and self-centeredness lead to lots of tripping and face-planting in our relationships and our efforts to do just about anything. Pride doesn't build up. Pride diminishes. Pride also crowds others out. Proverbs 13.10 tells us that pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. The reality is when someone is full of themselves, there's no room for anyone else. And the thing about pride is is that it's so deeply seated in our hearts and thoughts and actions that there are people being pushed to the corners of our lives at home and at work and at school, and we're not even aware of it. And people aren't the only ones that get crowded out by our pride. God gets crowded out by it as well. Listen to this verse that King David wrote in Psalm Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Our pride is the great potential to crowd God out of our lives. And in the Hebrew, this notion of having no room for God is actually translated, there is no God. In the thoughts of the wicked, in the prideful, there is no God. Like the leader we spoke about a few moments ago, that European leader, at the end of the pride spectrum, we really do have a tendency to believe that we are the center of the universe. And pride is a prison that shuts us in and shuts God and others out. I want to turn our thoughts in the direction of something that is the antidote for this. An invitation to follow Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus is also the invitation to unfollow pride. The verses that John read earlier from Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. The example of humility that Jesus taught and modeled is the radical approach to killing our pride. We expect people to be captivated by our speech when our lifestyles are not that compelling. Jesus wants us to follow his radical approach to humility. I'm gonna read about his radical approach in Philippians chapter two. If you have your Bible and wanna look there, you'll recognize this, this passage starting at verse one from Philippians two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You may say, now, wait a minute, Lee. 
I don't know about this taking a form of the servant thing. You don't understand. They owe me an apology. They did me wrong. They hurt me. They lied to me. They betrayed me. How can I possibly love and serve someone who has treated me this way? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he love and serve us who have lied to him, who've taken advantage of him, who've betrayed him, who've dishonored him? That's his example for us. He told us to love our enemies, and that is certainly what he demonstrated by his example. Loving others more than ourselves and living to serve rather than to be served, this is Jesus' radical approach to killing the pride. To follow Jesus is to unfollow pride. If I do things my way, I'm gonna keep others out and keep me locked inside. But if I'm truly following Jesus, I can't be content to do it my way. I've got to do it his way. Loving our enemies, forgiving those who have hurt us, initiating reconciliation with those who have betrayed us. This is Jesus' approach to humility and is the method, the only method, by which our pride can be killed. And how far did Jesus choose to take this method? All the way to Calvary. He was humble unto death. And he's asking you to die to your pride and to die to yourself and to be humble enough to go to your wife and say, I'm sorry. Or to go to your husband and say, please forgive me. Or to go to your parents or your children or someone else that you're in conflict with and say, I'm sorry, I want to make this right. Whatever pride you're holding on to in whatever relationship, whatever hurt from the past, whatever struggle in the present, Jesus invites you to follow his example. He stepped down from the throne room of heaven to humble himself for you and for me. And who are we not to be willing to humble ourselves before him and others for his glory? It's not easy, I know. It, it, it seeks to control us. My intellect knows that Jesus' way is the right way, the only way. But if I'm being honest, there are times when my emotions go to war with my intellect. And it causes me to try to resist Jesus' approach to humility. My my emotions send messages to my brain from the center of my pride that say things like this. Hey, Lee, why don't you find a reason not to apologize? Apologizing doesn't feel good and just kind of rationalize an apology away. Or it says things like, If you apologize, that's just going to make that other person think that everything was your fault and that they had nothing to be responsible for. That's the things that pride says. Our emotions are continually seeking to be behind the steering wheel in our lives, driving our thoughts and actions based on our pride. But Jesus says, let me drive. Let me control your thoughts and your actions. Don't let the pride of your emotion run things over a cliff. Every time we sing words to worship songs, like we've already done today, every time we pray, every time we ask God to help us, every time we turn to his word for guidance and truth, we are doing so based on a relationship with God that is rooted in extraordinary humility. There is no one who has ever demonstrated more humility than Jesus Christ. And everything we think, do, and say should be grounded in the desire to follow his remarkable, humble example. So a few questions I want to leave as I begin to wrap things up. Three questions to help you continue mulling over the message after you leave today. Question number one, how does pride display itself in my life? My meaning you. 
How does pride display itself in my life? If you don't know the answer to this question, don't worry, someone very close to you does. And if this is a mystery to you, if you aren't sure that you have a pride issue, toward the end of lunch today, and I say the end because I want you to enjoy your meal. If you ask before you eat, it probably will spoil your appetite. But lean over and say, hey, honey, or son, or daughter, or friend, or fiance, whoever you may be with, ask them, how do you see pride popping up in my life? And don't necessarily expect that many people are going to do that. This is kind of one of those things that pastors say that they don't really expect many people to take them up on. But if you try it, I think it might be beneficial for you in coming to terms with some blind spots of pride that you may not be aware of. And family members and friends, if you're the one who gets asked the question, remember that you also have pride in your life. So don't answer the question with the attitude of, well, I thought you'd never ask. Let me just tell you about your filthy, stinking, rotten pride. Um, Answer with the kind of humility that you would want someone to answer the same question for you. Pride has to be called out in our life and has to be surrendered and submitted to our Heavenly Father. It has to be recognized for what it is, a damaging, destructive poison. The second question to ask, how does pride hide itself in my life? The first question is, how does it surface? The second question is, where, what's going on beneath the surface? What's unseen? Maybe there's a confidence issue. Are you sure that confidence, a lot of it, isn't actually a mask for arrogance. Confidence isn't bad necessarily, but it can be a camouflage for self-centeredness. I'm a highly competitive person, and I know from personal experience how easy it can be for confidence to turn into arrogance, and I've learned this rule of thumb. If my confidence is in Christ, that's good. If my confidence is in me, that's not good. Another area that pride may be hiding is keeping up with the Joneses, Pride sometimes masquerades in life um, by having to have certain things, whether it's the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the house we live in, certain things to make us look like we're successful in keeping up with other people. Do we need to have certain things in order to prove our worth, or do we find our worth solely in Christ? Pride also hides sometimes behind time. Sometimes we like to allow time to kind of just Shake things out. If we allow enough time to go by, well, then this situation will work itself out and kind of uh, relieve me of responsibility and having to step in and actually be accountable for things that I've done. They say time heals all wounds. It's not true. Jesus does. Pride is what causes us to exaggerate the positives about ourselves and to downplay the negatives of ourselves. Pride is also what causes us to exaggerate the negative attributes in others and to downplay or completely overlook the positive attributes in others. Pride is what causes us to embellish conversations to make sure that we are seen in the best light possible. It's what prompts us to correct others on even the smallest of details that they may have gotten wrong in something they said or did. Pride is what makes us think that we are better than someone else. And you might say, now Lee, I would never think that I'm better than somebody else. We already talked about how pride also causes us to lie. Causes us to lie even to ourselves. Last question. How much longer do you plan to let pride have control? A month? A year? The rest of your life? There's a Latin phrase on an ancient coat of arms that speaks to the tension of secret pride. And if you know Latin, please forgive me because I'm probably not going to say this correct. The Latin phrase is 
esse quam videri, and it means to be rather than appear to be. To be rather than appear to be. Those words resonate with my soul. I don't want there to be a gap between what I am and what I portray. And this is something that I have to constantly depend on God to help me with. As the years of my life have gone by, God has faithfully, with surgeon-like precision, been cutting away at the pride of my life. And he continues to. I need his help every single day. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I need Jesus to help me every day. I want to be rather than merely appear to be. Don't you? The older I get, the less concern I have with what I have or have not done and the more concern I have with what I have or have not become. The more concerned I am about becoming more and more like my Savior. If I'm going to consistently win the battle over sin and pride, I have to consistently have the attitude of Christ. In order to follow Jesus and unfollow pride, we must be willing to offer the apologies that need to be made. We must be willing to offer the forgiveness that needs to be offered. In order to follow Jesus and unfollow pride, we must offer the sincere compliments and congratulations to others for the opportunities that they got that we didn't. And probably most importantly, we also need to be willing to pray. Consistently, fervently, passionately pray and make our prayer lives the kind of priority they should be for people who realize that we are totally dependent on God and not ourselves. We must die to self. One more time, Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. Follow Jesus, unfollow pride. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We need to lay down our pride and walk in the victory of Jesus' humility on the cross in order that we may experience the joy, the joy of watching our kingdoms fall and his kingdom be built up. Only when we, we become humble servants will we truly resemble the Christ that we worship. John 3.30 says, he must become greater, I must become less. May that be our prayer. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we humble ourselves today in the power of your name, the name before which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And the name that which every tongue will confess is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We ask, Lord, that you will help us daily to recognize our dependence on you, to be able to conquer and overcome the power of pride in our lives. We, we give you permission, Father, to root it out. Help us, Father, as we um, encourage one, each other, one another, hold each other accountable. Father, we want to see you receive the honor and the glory that you are due as we follow your amazing example of humility. Father, we lay our kingdoms down 
and we serve yours and yours alone. It's in your name that we pray, amen.
Sunset